0: On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Vanessa Dawson, CEO and founder of the Veneta Project, a global ecosystem designed to help high-growth female founders secure the mentorship, funding, and support they need to scale their business successfully. By offering access to resources, Veneta is creating a diverse and inclusive environment that supports the advancement of women and other marginalized groups. Since 2013, Veneta has facilitated the flow of more than $180 million in funding, Towards tech and companies founded by women. We speak with Vanessa today about working at the intersection of gender and economic justice, closing the gender funding gap for female tech founders. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to set the stage for our listeners regarding the ecosystem of tech female founders. In 2018, women received only 2.2% of all venture funding, which is apparently a decrease from 2017. And startups founded by by women, and even though startups founded by women are 20% more likely to generate revenue, VCs make a 3.5% higher ROI on female founders and male founders. And yet, 80% of investors say that multicultural and women business owners get the right amount or more amount of capital than they deserve. What do you think is the story behind this gap in perception and reality?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think that our access to venture capital and, and leveraging venture capital is a very unique form of funding for your business that in general, not a lot of people are successful at receiving. So we can, we can start with that. However, there are billions of dollars allocated each year, and a significantly less um, money goes to women entrepreneurs than go to um, male entrepreneurs. So there is there's definitely a disconnect. And I think that a lot of it exists for a couple of reasons. Um, the, one, the one primary reason, I think, is that the people that are allocating the funds are a very specific group of individuals. And women actually only make up 11% of venture capital decision makers or investment partners or people that, that actually have the ability to cut a check and take a bet on an entrepreneur. So if we start with that, I think that is really where a lot of the issues arise is that the people giving, there's not diversity within the people that are allocating the funds. And so venture capital is a very high risk also investment kind of asset class. And a lot of the early stage investments are based on the person and the team and the relationship that uh, a partner or investor has with that founder or that entrepreneur. And I think that in general, it's if if the if the capital is controlled by a lot of white men that have very specific networks and um, get various deal flow from their friends and their networks. Then it's kind of always perpetuating this endless cycle of the money going to the same types of people because it is such a network-driven, personal relationships kind of network effect uh, method of capital allocation. So I think that is the core. That's one of the core issues: is we need more women allocating money into funds and allocating money into female entrepreneurs or into entrepreneurs in general. Then I think on the on the other side, I think there's just a lot of biases that exist in society that have been really hard for women to get over in terms of their, their their ability to perform as leaders, which is kind of which is kind of shocking because you know the data doesn't actually show the same result as our unconscious biases do as a society. So I think we have a lot of work to do in just identifying and showcasing that there are certain ways that we treat women entrepreneurs different than their kind of male counterparts. And we have to be aware of those internal biases that exist within all of us uh, in order for us to give women the equal opportunity for access to capital and these resources.
0: When one refers to unconscious bias, I tend to think of it as something that's very instinctive that we don't have control over. And yet the statistics that I cited clearly indicate that women run businesses perform better. So it's not really unconscious. It seems to be conscious bias that we're talking about. Would you say that's the case?
1: I'd say that both exist, but I definitely believe that they in terms of funding. I think there is specifically a lot of unconscious bias that does exist. And when, when asked, you know, people won't say, oh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to find women entrepreneurs like that is that's generally not the response. Um, But, you know, I think one of the biggest studies that came out and kind of drew some light on this was one done by like Harvard Business Review on recording VCs conversations with founders and then analyzing how differently they talked about female entrepreneurs and the different questions that they actually, that female entrepreneurs got from VCs versus what they got from, versus what, sorry, male entrepreneurs got from VCs. And it really, it really does affect how much funding you receive because the VCs frame different questions in different ways. They approach problems and like challenge women in different ways. They promote the male kind of markets and opportunity and traction where they always ask preventative type of questions of the women. So the women are always having to kind of like catch up or prove themselves. So I think that I think there is a lot of unconscious bias that does exist. And I but yes, of course, the the, the conscious bias that exists is, is blatantly out there as well. I mean, I've had women experienced venture capitalists that just blatantly ask these women, you know, you're, you're going to have children in a couple of years. How is that going to impact your ability to run a company? I mean, men have children as well. So how is that going to impact their, like they never get those questions. So there, there is, I think there's a level of both that needs to be addressed, but I think that I think of late calling out that or recognizing the unconscious bias is just as important as recognizing the conscious bias.
0: Right. And nobody, uh, I don't believe anybody asked Marissa Meyer that question, even though she had a child while she was helming Yahoo, right? <laughs> exactly. Can you talk a little bit more about that Harvard Business Review study? I remember reading it and correct me if, if I'm wrong, the ways that the VCs asked female founders questions were more about the market, the market opportunities and whether or not they had uh, a strong enough de- defense against competition. Whereas it seemed like the questions addressed to the male founders were about whether they sized the market properly and appropriately and you know, how they differentiated the product. Does that sound right or were there other nuances that I'm missing?
1: Yeah. So the basic premise of the Harvard Business Review study was that VCs frame questions in two different ways when speaking to men and when speaking to women. And so when speaking to women, they frame it in a promotional way, which really focuses on potential gains. And then when speaking to or sorry, when speaking to men, they focus on promotion, which focuses on potential gains. And when speaking to women, they ask these preventative questions, which focus on potential losses, not gains. So for example, if they're asking you a question about market size, they may ask a guy, do you think you're on target or do you you think your target market is a growing one? So they can answer, you know, yes, of course to that versus with a woman, they might ask like, how is this going to be defensible business when so many other people can come in and take this market share from you because it's such a large market. So women are always having to kind of like defend and men are always given the opportunity to promote.
0: So it's almost like the model of sort of having a deficit mindset with women, like there's something missing and she's, or there's something that she's not doing enough of. Whereas with men, that whatever he's doing is, is, you know, the abundance approach is, is going to be good enough and is going to be able to grow the business.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely how to put it as this deficit mindset. And I always think of I've, this visual of two people in a race and there's all of these barriers and obstacles, uh, in front of women that, uh, but they're competing for the same end goal. But women are just constantly, uh, they're just constantly more, more in front of them that they have to overcome. And so that's kind of the visual that I always think about in relation to that.
0: Do we actually have any evidence that female VCs or VCs that are primarily female led and female decision makers are more likely to fund female founders?
1: Yeah, I think we do. I don't know who the studies are done by, but, and I think it's very early stage because there have not been a ton of partner level female VCs. Um, I think it's more case study kind of, but, but yeah, there definitely is a tendency when there are more Women on a partnership team of a fund, or women, more women in the investment decision-making role, they tend to a just see more female-founded deal flow, so they'll have more of it in the door to review, and then yes, b that will convert into a more diverse portfolio from a gender perspective. I don't know what study precisely to quote on that, but i there's a ton of um, kind of information out there that uh, or examples of, of funds that follow that kind of flow.
0: At what point in your professional history did you become aware of the necessity to address the gender funding gap or did gender in general become prominent in your narrative, whether it's the gender wage gap, gender wealth gap, gender funding gap?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think it really became prominent when I moved to New York City and was working in private equity. I think that it was just such a blatant example of ridiculously wealthy men (laughs) behaving badly. And it was just fascinating to see uh, the control that money, the power and control that money gave them and then what they did with that. It it was just, it was really interesting. And it made me become so passionate about understanding the, the power of money and how women need to start to leverage that for their own success, for their own careers, for their own power and influence to hopefully do more with it in a positive way. I think it's it's interesting. Uh, Sarah I read an article the other day about Sarah Blakely becoming the first billionaire to lose her billionaire status because she's actually contributing back to other entrepreneurs and giving money to various causes and I don't I'm not necessarily one to always encourage women to just get into charitable work cuz I think that's also this weird expectation of women but yes I think that when when given the opportunity I think women are very efficient with their capital. They're very strategic with their capital. They are very socially, morally, environmentally um, positive and, and altruistic with their capital. So I think, yeah, having having experienced the private equity world early on in my career in New York, I just knew it was the opposite of the type of environment I wanted to operate in. But I but I really felt as though, wow, we need more women with control and with, with money and with this power to have a positive influence and change on the world. <laughs> I think that was a, that was a really uh, important kind of revolution for me.
0: For our listeners, just um, Sarah Blakely is the founder of Spanx. Yes. And I, I don't remember when she became a billionaire. Yeah, it was a very quickly rising um, tide that she rode. But I you know, applaud her for um, being able to give back. I, I hope that more female founders can actually follow in her example while still preserving their own wealth and ability to uh, positively influence with the, with the capital that they have. So, when you talked about your time in private equity in New York being different, where were the other spaces that you had traveled?
1: Um, I moved to New York right right after university. So it was I came, grew up in Vancouver, went to school uh, outside of Toronto, and I started kind of my early career in financial services in Vancouver, and then moved to New York fairly early on in my career. So I guess I'm I'm not comparing this with, you know, a, a life of career and living and working in different cities, but it was definitely a interesting kind of space to be to be operating in and thrown into when I first kind of arrived in New York City, but I guess I don't really have many other sectors or verticals to compare it with as I was young in my career, early 20s, 22. No, no. (laughs) I was going to
0: say it actually could be attributable to the fact that your experience was mainly in Canada and Canadians are in many ways more advanced than we are, I think, with regard to issues of equity and access at least from the very, very little experience that I have and the companies that I follow there. I have to say, (laughs) I was was at an entrepreneurial feminist forum conference in Toronto at the end of last year, and I had never been in a professional setting in Canada before. And what was surprising to me, I guess this was because of a recent law that was passed. At the beginning of the conference, we gave thanks to the land and acknowledgement. And, and so I thought the Americans who sat around me were looking at each other, like, how many years is it going to take before this happens in the US?
1: (laughs) I love that. Yeah, no, that that could be the case. Although, you know, the the population of Canada fits inside California. So it's hard (laughs) to extrapolate some of that. But yeah, I mean, that that could be the, the case for sure. I think that I, I do think that there is a shift, though, in the last five to ten years, where it, with, in terms of gender equality, where we're kind of in this new wave of understanding the barriers that women now face. After, you know, we there, there's been so many revolutionary changes that have happened over the last fifty or hundred years in terms of rights, and with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Hillary Clinton and all these, all all these amazing women before us. But I think there is this new shift in feminism that is more focused on equality of home, equality of work, equality, uh, re- rebranding kind of feminism in a new way, I guess, and understanding the struggles that still do exist that maybe are a little bit more unconscious. I think there are issues. I think Canada still does have its gender inequality issues, um, but I think they're they're taking them head on. And it, it's, it's uh, been something that even the government and, and policymakers have been really passionate about and supportive for, for change. So potentially, I'm, I'm not sure though. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a better, if it's any better than the U.S. to be honest.
0: Well, still something to aspire to.
1: <laughs> yes, there are certain things for Canada definitely to aspire to.
0: <laughs> so
1: let's talk about
0: Fanetta. Can you talk about your business model and how you leverage the four pillars of capital to help female tech founders?
1: Yeah, definitely. So the goal of Fineta Project is to build one of the largest ecosystems and deal flow pipelines of female founded uh, technology companies and then really source those companies, vet those companies, understand their needs and their struggles and where we can be supportive and then give them access to the various forms of capital that are necessary for entrepreneurial growth. So we kind of frame capital into four different buckets, not just financial capital, but there is intellectual capital. So how are you surrounding yourself with the right um, kind of educational resources? Are you learning? Are you getting access to those right, the right tools you need in in, in those terms? We also focus on social capital. So, network access is so pivotal as an entrepreneur and particularly as a venture backed entrepreneur. Do you have the right network access? Can we strategically work with you on getting in front of the right individuals? Then, we also focus really on personal capital, which is one of my favorite pillars because entrepreneurship is such a difficult journey and it is there are there are a lot of ups and downs. And so how can we support uh, entrepreneurs as leaders of their own companies, as you know, independent operators? They're working through a lot of kind of individual needs that they need to stay mindful of. So making sure that they are supported emotionally in, in that regard as well. And then lastly, financial capital. How can we equip you with the right tools and resources from an investment perspective, analyzing what capital May be appropriate for what financial capital may be appropriate for you, and making sure that you're really buttoned up in terms of metrics and your cap table and all other things that are essential for venture funding and for high growth companies.
0: Danetta focuses on tech female founders. Why did you choose tech versus the larger framework of, let's say, social impact that might be within? philanthropy, or somewhere along the social impact continuum, nonprofit, yeah. etc.
1: I mean, I, I'm pretty adamant that women are philanthropic and social and enough as it is that we need more women to become major business leaders of multi multi billion dollar corporations and owning that power and owning that money and having a positive influence once they get there. So I think that for me, it was really important that I, I want, we need women in these spaces where they don't already exist. We need them in venture capital. We need them launching massive um, technology f- firms and organizations. Um, we need them in on boards of corporate companies. So I picked kind of a niche that I understood. I was a, I had launched a number of technology companies. I had raised venture capital. I'd worked in private equity. This was a world where like the, all of those worlds, uh, the, the, The gender equations are off. So we need more women in those spaces. And so I just, I focus on what I knew and what I think would have a really huge impact. And I think that there is major opportunity to increase our reach and support small business owners as well and um, owners of nonprofits and other things. But for us, You know, you kind of have to pick your market and go after it. And so we just decided that this would be a really impactful space for us to play. Our partners were really interested in it. Our founders really needed support in it, and uh, there it wasn't a really crowded space when we started. So yeah, that was our that was kind of our decision.
0: Okay, and then just to clarify, could you just define how you you, how you define tech for anyone who's listening, so they know whether or not to reach out?
1: No, yeah, fairly it's fairly so. Tech is defined in a fairly broad way. We are not specifically software focused. So if you are developing a consumer company or a product or even a service for that matter that lives online, but there, we're, we're open to all of those. However, the, the big differentiator being that we're really interested in how you are leveraging technology as a competitive advantage. So if you have IP or trademark or a new manufacturing process, or you are disrupting a supply chain or packaging, I think that it's really just important to us that you are using new technology, creating new technology, and trying to, try, trying to kind of advance product creation services or development through, in a technological way. Um, so it's pretty broad, like we have over 52 sectors represented in our deal flow pipeline right now and always growing but you should kind of your competitive advantage should be centered around the technology that your company is creating.
0: And when you talk about the four pillars, it seems to me that if you have a female founder of a tech company, they have obviously some level of personal intellectual and social capital already. Are are those things that they really need versus just the funding?
1: Yeah, no, they, they're definitely things they need. I think the the uprise of acceleration and incubation programs has been huge of late because entrepreneurship with these new technology companies is fairly replicable. There, there's, a, there's certain things that you can do in a really streamlined way to just like quickly get your company off the ground, to quickly get your, I don't know, customer service. A team up and running on a very on a certain platform to get your legal and incorporation documents underway there there's there's a lot of things that can be learned where as an early stage entrepreneur if you have access to the right um, networks if you have access to the right resources and tools you're just going to get there faster you're going to be able to execute faster because hundreds of people have done it before you so no
0: no need to reinvent the wheel let's help you get access to those things and Veneta's programming includes tools, pitch panel, such as workshops, then you have events like fireside yeah, Veneta chats has and three,
1: yeah, we have three different types of programs. So we run a pitch and panel series that's really focused on social capital. So access to networks, um, exposure for your company, also access to investors, preparing your pitch, understanding your value proposition, identifying your traction, your metrics, Um, We run a workshop series on various different things based on what our partners um, can provide in different cities and what our founders are looking for. We run a founders and funders dinner series, which again is is very tailored on network and investor access. And then we also co-launch corporate problem hacking programs with various uh, innovation arms of different corporate divisions. And so those allow us to go deep in certain sectors and and produce three-month mentorship programs where our founders can work through certain business issues with um, corporate experts. So say you want to be expanding your supply or changing your co-packer and expanding your distribution to Asia, we can partner you with someone who can help you walk through that issue who has maybe done that for over 30 years at Procter and Gamble, for instance. So it really helps you again expedite kind of your path to growth and get their, get access to resources you need. So I'll combine all of those events and programs target different capital pillars and allow our entrepreneurs to get access to various things that they need as they as they scale and grow.
0: And how are you measuring success across these four programming opportunities?
1: So we measure the increase of our deal flow pipeline. So are we always seeing new entrepreneurs? Are we measure the capital raised by entrepreneurs who have been involved in programming? So is that number increasing? Are we helping to get more women access to capital? We measure seed to Series A conversion. So are these companies um, that are venture-backable growing to the next level? Or are they getting that next round of financing? And then we have our own kind of proprietary database where founders input a lot of their information that we, so we can understand the metrics on a company by company basis. So are they hiring? Um, is their revenue growing? Are they securing more partnerships? We have kind of a detailed uh, subset of company information that we can extrapolate from to show that we are having impact on the actual founders within the community too.
0: And what are your rates of membership of women of color in Veneta?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. We haven't actually divided the deal flow by that, but we've made a really big um, push in terms of the last two years to partner also with uh, organizations that are supporting women of color. I don't do all the chapter level work, so my city directors would be more privy to this information, but it's really important to us that we integrate with local kind of, there's a group for Latina founders that we're working with in Los Angeles. There is um, Black Women Who Code that we work with in uh, New York. So we, I, I don't have the exact metrics, but it is a huge focus
0: and priority for us that we ourselves are also diverse within our community. And how are Vanetta founders being sourced? Um, are they coming directly from founder inquiries or is there, is it more coming from Vanetta's outreach?
1: Both. So we have kind of an inbound and an outbound strategy. We have a marketing and PR um, kind of push that allows us to get out, uh, get our programs out to a number of, the founders that maybe aren't in our technical or in our city hubs. And then we also operate a chapter model where we have a pretty robust team on the ground in each city that we operate in. We've got an advisory committee, a venture committee, and city directors who are all actively engaged in local innovation communities. So they are really critical in us sourcing top founders getting making sure founders are aware of what we're doing and drawing them into our programs and into the into the pipeline
0: and How are you measuring among the three non-financial pillars the other three pillars? What of the other three your members need most in terms of support in building or developing?
1: Yeah, we we do a lot of uh, feedback with our community. So we're constantly uh, doing surveys to understand what are the what are the things that you need more support in? Was this program successful or useful for you? We have kind of a ping in our database when founders hit certain milestones where we can check back in with them to see if they might need different resources at that point in time. So I think it's just where we stay very like high touch with our community and our city directors do. So it allows us to get a lot of feedback from them and pivot programming accordingly based
0: on what what they're looking for. Do you find that there's a perception gap with what the founders think they need and what their mentors and funders think they need to build in terms of capacity? That's interesting. I, I think there may be, but
1: we have always said that we are a founder first community and we think we know a lot of the time what. Or the founders do really do know what what it is they need access to when they when they need it. So we get a lot of our feedback on programming from founders, and then build from there. But I think that would be interesting to see. Um, there doesn't seem to be a disconnect as of now. I think there was a disconnect earlier on when a lot of our corporate or service provider partners. What they wanted was very different than what founders wanted, but we can't attract top founders if we're not servicing the founders. So we've always been just really all about understanding and hearing the needs of the founders that attracts the best founders, then therefore it attracts the best investors and partners around us. And it kind of all flows from there. So we don't usually lead a ton of our programs from the corporate partner or investor perspective. We usually lead pretty founder first.
0: The the reason I'm asking that question is because it it goes to the pipeline issue and, you know, why there aren't enough women in tech and women in STEM to begin with. And one example that I, well, several examples that I have is I went to uh, Stuyvesant High School in New York, which was very (laughs) tech oriented. In the course of my podcast research, I had reached out to the female tech community from my high school and interviewed some people unofficially, and they had taken CS classes in high school, and whereas the boys in their classes at the time already had some exposure prior to high school, and so it created a confidence gap that persisted to the extent that they didn't even wanna do CS when they got to college, even though it was interesting to them. And one person in particular that I spoke with, only after years of, I think she was in her mid-twenties when I met with her, years of sort of self, self-analysis, realized, hey, you know, I'm interested in this and I wanna do this and I'm not gonna let what my perception of myself relative to these very <laughs> haughty and confident guys from my high school change what I want to do for a living. So she actually went into the Grace Hopper program. But this was in her late 20s. Um, So she lost in theory, you know, almost a decade of work that she could have been building in tech. And this is Stuyvesant. So you can imagine, you know, elsewhere, what other kinds of social capital, intellectual capital barriers other women have that even this one woman was not alone in her self perception.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I think Confidence is a really big thing that that we think about and work on in terms of pitching your story, pitching yourself, pitching your company. That's all very very critical in the entrepreneurial journey, too, and something maybe that women struggle with more, for sure.
0: So is there a plan in the future to address the pipeline, increase women in STEM, either at the secondary level or post-secondary level?
1: No, that is not a plan of ours. Um, I think that from a pipeline perspective, ours, ours is, looks really good, actually. I think that we just need to help the current women in the pipeline, not about increasing it so for at the stage that we're at. But I definitely know that there are some amazing programs like Girls Who Code and other organizations that do work at that lower level. We will work with uh, kind of entrepreneurial groups within colleges and universities, there's definitely some younger women that attend our events and get inspired by that. But I think for us to be effective, we, we need to take a kind of niche approach or not even niche, but I don't, I don't know that it would be beneficial for us to expand into every category um, of the pipeline possible. So I think we're, we're going to stay pretty focused on where we're at.
0: What about the regulatory environment Do you see any regulatory or policy changes that might benefit female founders? Yeah, definitely. That would encourage innovation or incentivize funders to invest more in female-led startups?
1: Yeah, I actually sit on the National Women's Business Council, which is a group, nonpartisan group put together to advise Congress, the SBA, and the president on issues to do with women entrepreneurs and how policy can impact uh, female entrepreneurs in a positive way. So we, uh, that is our goal, is to get information from the public each year in a series of roundtables and um, various discussions, and then advise or present certain policies that we think may be put in place that could support more more women. So I think one of the one of the I sit on the access to capital subcommittee, and one of the core areas that I'm focused on is first of all understanding how can we incentivize. I think more. Angel investors. So, is there a way to de-risk angel investing from a maybe monetary standpoint, so maybe tax incentives or otherwise, so that we can encourage more women to become angel investors? I think uh, I think that yeah, making it easier to become an angel investor or encouraging that via policy incentivizations, I think, would be a great uh, win. And then we're also looking at. Ways that we could encourage endowments, pension funds, large federal or government-controlled monetary funds. Uh, How can how can we maybe set some regulation around their allocation goals to female investors? So is there a way that you know we can recommend that five percent allocation of the pension goes into asset classes that are being managed by female GPs or female partners of funds. So those are two big policy things that I'm really passionate about pursuing this year in the hopes that that will have a positive impact on women entrepreneurs and access to capital.
0: And what's the general stance that your male peers have around these prospective policies? Are they in support of them?
1: Yeah, there's definitely support of them. I think that there I think that there's the recognition that there's a massive opportunity to invest in women entrepreneurs that they are overperforming, that they are underfunded, that there is this gap that exists that can be monetized positively. I think yeah, every, there there's definitely excitement around this, not pushback. I don't come from a government or policy background though, so getting these through to a level of implementation is a whole other story that I, that I am not necessarily um, sure of the process on thus far.
0: You mentioned earlier about the Harvard Business Review study and how some VCs ask questions around family planning. What are your thoughts around Veneta's role in facilitating and or supporting some large-scale changes with regard to Issues of affordable health care, medical coverage, things that actually do inform choices that your tech female founders might might have to consider.
1: Yeah, gosh. I mean I would love that. I think a really great way to implement something like that at the entrepreneurial level is start thinking about the way you're structuring your own company. So if we can get some of these women that are building multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies to put some policies in place within their organization. So on the private side, not even the, the public or government side, how can we put certain requirements in place uh, or policies in place at within the, the workplace where women can really be leaders in that and and implementing those? I, I mean, I think that would be the best way to, to tackle something like this. So we haven't thought deeply about that, but I know a few companies, that are being yeah are, are have the foresight to kind of start thinking through various policies that are that are going to be more adaptive to a culture that supports women uh, employees and building a better culture for women in the workforce for sure so see there's huge potential to do that as more female entrepreneurs become successful and are, are building these huge huge corporations hopefully that can that can be something that we can advise and strategize on with them and, and roll out. I think that's an amazing opportunity.
0: So you mentioned the word earlier, feminism, that's not obviously explicitly written anywhere on your website or in any of the messaging that you have. But obviously, your firm is all about promoting gender justice, and economic justice. I'm wondering what role feminist values play in Vanetta's mission and vision, because just having more women doesn't necessarily equate to feminist values of equality and justice and sustainability, necessarily.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess
0: I'd ask you, how do you define feminist values? Equality, justice, and sustainability, and, and how it's manifest in the process of getting there also could be feminist or not. So if it's collaborative, if it's inclusive, if it's non-binary in its approach, it's not about a zero, if it's not zero-sum gain in its thinking, if it's about not deficit thinking, but abundance thinking in its approach, I think all of these are feminist values. A lot of the female, both funded companies in the private sector, not necessarily tech, but just female companies that I've been following, they're very pro-women and pro-equity in terms of access to women in these spaces, but they're not communicating anything beyond that. Um, and so I was at a event recently, I won't mention the name of the company, and it, it, it's a, how do I say this without... Yeah, so it was—it's targeted towards women members this company, and there was no diversity. And the few women of color that were there, I gravitated towards, and we were remarking on it and just how tone deaf the community manager was and not being specific about and intentional about addressing that. So the question is: Is there an intention to be feminist in your approach to finding companies? that support equality and justice and other feminist values, or is it just about equity in access to funding and gender equity in this space? Our focus
1: is on supporting female entrepreneurs who I think, and I think by nature, female entrepreneurs lead with equality, justice, and sustainability, so a byproduct of us supporting female-led businesses is abundance thinking, not deficit thinking, triple bottom line, equality, all of the things that come with uh, with feminism, I think is a default of us supporting female led businesses. And we see that in a lot of the companies and the deal flow. So we see women that really lead differently. And I think that in us doing that, that is going to have a huge impact on what on what on what I'm passionate about, which is the gender equality and and kind of closing this gender funding gap. Um, and then with that, hopefully businesses and companies and corporations will be created with more equality, justice and sustainability within them. I don't know that we need to call ourselves, our, call ourselves out on that on the, in the marketing and branding. I think it's kind of inherent in the types of pe- women that we're supporting that will turn up in the companies that they're creating.
0: By the way, I didn't mean to imply that it should be explicit in your marketing, although that certainly is an option. But I find that when these values aren't deliberately and intentionally communicated to all the stakeholders, it's very easy to move away from them and not have some metric for gauging whether or not your your mission and values are uh, basically if there's mission creep or or some other uh, criteria that is going to take precedence over these.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think setting mission and values is important. Yeah, within any organization, and yeah, we definitely do that, like all other corporations or successful corporations and brands do. And the gender equality aspect, which is so important and pivotal to our brand and important to our yeah everything we do, it, yeah, definitely comes up, comes out in a mission and 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 vision and and. Uh, all of our, all of our internal um, and hopefully some of our external as well, communication.
0: When I, when I shared that, I was actually reminded of an interview that Melinda Gates did. I don't know if you watch the um, David Letterman special on Netflix. Yeah. A couple he, of them. <laughs> yeah. So he, he had an interview with Melinda Gates who recently published a book called the moment of lift, um, which is all about empowering women and how that changes the world. And I was, Surprised to hear, I you know I don't really follow her um, interviews. And then after that episode aired, I, I looked up her history of talking about gender equity, and she said in that interview that she never really thought of herself or had to think of herself or call herself a feminist until you know at some point there was early on in the um, Gates Foundation um, she was giving a speech and one of the organizers of the event asked her directly about it and made her think about it. And it was just from a, basically a place of privilege that she didn't have to really think about it until all the work that they had been doing with the Gates Foundation and now how important it is to actually be deliberate about communicating that. And so I was really surprised. And she actually recently, meaning like two or three years ago, I think, published a piece even about how she's raising her son to be feminist, which was impressive. Love it. So this brings us to the close of our conversation, which at the end, I always ask a series of questions to every guest. I've adapted it from inside the Actors Studio. And I want to pose the first question to you. What is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that for... For us, it's all about creating women with their own power, control, and confidence to kind of manage their own destinies. So I think it's really, yeah, it's really important. We're, we're taking this angle of supporting women entrepreneurs because it's kind of hopefully allows um, creation of independence and, and um, a move toward more power and, and control in a positive way for women. So I think... In terms of what is at stake, I hope we're I hope we're moving in a more positive direction, and I hope Vanetta is contributing to to women's individual power. What gives you hope? Sorry, I missed that one.
0: What gives you hope?
1: What gives me hope? I think seeing the number of entrepreneurs increase year over year that come to us for support um, to work with us that are. Encouraged by the programs that we're doing, that are excited that there is something that is targeting them, that there are more women identifying with feminism. (laughs) I think all all of those things give me hope. Uh, There's been a really big media push towards gender inequality over the last five years, and my hope now is that. That is going to convert to some real real numbers and real change. So uh, I, yeah, I think we're I think we're headed in a good direction.
0: <laughs> and final question, What can we do more of, less of start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression?
1: Yeah, I think more awareness, I think more awareness is always always good. More supportive communities and support networks where we can where where people can talk about their problems and their issues having a group for us having a group of entrepreneurs that you can go and relate to has been a really powerful thing how can we create more communities and more open forums for discussion around gender violence I think is really important as well and yeah I I think I think those are two things that I, I think we would we would want more of well thank you so much Vanessa for
0: joining us on our show today
1: thank you so much for having me. I think it's a really important platform. So I'm glad to be glad to be here.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community and learning. You can join Can Do it Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.